0: Thanks for joining us on the MHDD Crossroads Podcast. Today, I am joined by Sue Rees, who is a licensed vocational rehabilitation counselor and is also the program director of Aggies Elevated at Utah State University. Sue, as we start, would you mind giving our listeners an overview of what Aggies Elevated is and what your job as the program director consists of?
1: Sure. So Aggies Elevated is a two-year inclusive certificate program at Utah State for students with intellectual disabilities. So they come to campus, live in the dorms, are included in every aspect of campus life and get additional supports beyond what they could get from the Disability Resource Center to be successful. So they get um, 10 hours a week of a peer mentor's time, Aggies Elevated Academic Coordinator helps to keep track of, make sure they have enough support in the form of tutors, et cetera. And we just help them along. And as the program director, I'm responsible for oversight of every aspect of the program.
0: Thanks for explaining that. I think you did a better job explaining what it is than I would have. Can you share a little bit about your professional background and how you've made it to your current role and even into this field in general?
1: Sure. Um, I'll probably go. In 2013, I was working as the PR specialist at the Center for Persons with Disabilities and got roped into a fundraising event um, where my task was to create a vision for what a program like Aggies Elevated could become at USU. And um, so I went to this fundraising event and you know, had created brochures and posters and things like that. Listened to USU faculty talking about what keeps them awake at night. You know, young adults with intellectual disabilities sitting on their parents' couches, playing video games because they can't get a job, they can't go to school, they can't participate in anything. And totally drank the Kool Aid if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> um, and so that was um, the event was in in October of 2014, and by January of 2015, I had enrolled in the Master of Rehabilitation Counseling program at USU. And by August of 2014, we had students on campus. Fundraising event was a success, um, to say the least. And so. I worked with the program from the very beginning, although I didn't really realize it was going to be a program. Um, So I did my required internship for the MRC with Aggies Elevated in 2015, when we received federal funding to expand the program, I became the full-time career success coordinator and then in the fall of 2018 became the program director. So it's been a whirlwind. Thank you. Um, In the
0: past, you and I have talked a little bit before about how a lot of jobs in the helping profession are misunderstood such as who can offer therapy do you mind explaining what vocational rehabilitation counseling is and what rehabilitation counselors do?
1: Sure. Um, I, I like to go back to the um, scope of practice statement that the commission for the certification of rehabilitation counselors um, has on its website. And so it essentially rehabilitation counseling is a systematic process which assists persons with physical mental, developmental, cognitive and emotional disabilities to achieve their personal career and independent living goals in the most integrated setting possible through the application of the counseling process. So that's what it is and that's what we do.
0: Thank you. I feel like, yeah, so that's a perfect degree to have gotten, and then become the program director of Aggies Elevated. They go very well together. They do go well together. I know like, for example, like with social work, if you have your bachelor's in social work or your master's, there's like drastically different you know, roles that you can fill. Is it the same way with rehabilitation counseling?
1: It It is, and it depends um, what state you're in and what agency you're with. If you are um, with vocational rehabilitation, um, the entity like USOR in Utah, Utah State Office of Rehabilitation, um, in Utah, it's it's a it's more case management and making sure um, the clients get the services um, that they need to be able to get a job, and um, providing things like job coaching and um, services like that. In other states rehabilitation counselors are eligible to become licensed professional counselors which means they can you know provide counseling to to the general population with that you know focus on disability because we have that specialized training in disability um, and it, the CRCC scope of practice also says that um, well, says that, you know, we are able to do all of those things. The code of ethics then says, um, if you've had the specialized education and training to provide, for example, diagnosis or things like that.
0: Thank you. So it seems like, so you are familiar with transition. I am. My understanding, especially like with Aggies Elevated Yes. Do you mind talking about what some of the challenges are that people with disabilities might face when they're transitioning from high school to college?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably the biggest challenge they may face is um, not having had the opportunity or the practice of making decisions for themselves. Um, I IEP meetings beginning in, you know, at age 14 or so or earlier should include the student and should definitely include, you know, at least some portion of a goal that they'd like to meet. Um, it's better now. I've seen changes in the five years since Aggies Elevated has has been around six years. Oh my gosh. Um, in that our very first cohort, um, some students had never been expected to do homework. And so that was a huge, huge culture shock when they got to college and found that they actually had to do the work. Um, the students or the applicants that we're seeing now have much more experience in those kinds of things, um, making decisions, setting goals for themselves. Um, but. But that's a big thing. There are um they expect mom and dad to do it a lot of times. So
0: you mentioned IEP meetings and how they're supposed to be involved in it, I believe is the word you used, like, supposed to be, which is interesting because I read about like person-centered playing, like the benefits of. You know, if you're going to come up with somebody's goals, it makes sense that, you know, they should be involved in identifying their goals and the processes. Yes. So I can understand how if they weren't using that sort of planning that maybe they're not used to, you know, making independent decisions, and that would be one big challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, Something else I was wondering about, though, is when they transition, is there a change in like what systems they interact with?
1: Um. Yes, if I'm understanding your question correctly. Um, In high school, accommodations and modifications to assignments in the curriculum are are a given. That's part of the IEP process or under IDEA. Um, When they get to college, they have to make the appointment with the Disability Resource Center and request the accommodations so that means they're going to have to disclose their disability, which they may not want to do in college, um, but it's all driven by the student. Parents can't do it for them. Um, so that's a shift. It's, it goes from just automatic to now it's the student's responsibility.
0: Yes, you do understand what I was asking, that was kind of what I was wondering, that change in systems, like working in schools, I think there's like a lot of supports that are just sort of naturally there, mm-hmm. and Good. it changes, yeah, afterwards, like yeah. once you graduate, you know, you have to start looking for things on your own, which I think is everyone experienced, but it's a bit different in this case.
1: Yeah, we, as a program, provide a lot of those supports um, that are not generally available unless there's a program like Aggie's Elevated. Um, so you know, students can go to the DRC and get get extended time on tests, or a reader, or a scribe, or you know, audio books, or any kind of those type of accommodations. Um, we provide peer mentoring or additional homework support, tutor support. Um, And that is something that um, students with disabilities who are on campus, but not in our program, don't have access to.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it would be a challenge then if they're not involved in a similar program.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, Aggies Elevated is for students with intellectual disabilities. So they're the students who wouldn't be able to get traditional admission to the university. They typically don't have an ACT score um, or it's very low, um, so they don't meet the admission requirements. Um, Other students with disabilities who do meet the admissions requirements um, then typically don't have intellectual disability. So that's, that's kind of the difference. Okay,
0: thank you. Something I was wondering about is, yeah, the pandemic is happening, as we all are aware of.
1: It's um, happening.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's happening. It's been going on for a little bit now. Um, what are some challenges that you have seen with students coming back to campus during the pandemics? And what are some steps you guys have taken to address those challenges?
1: Um, <clears throat> it's It's been interesting. Um, last semester, Excuse me. Last semester actually went pretty well after we transitioned to online in March. um, We kept up all of the same supports that we had provided before. It just happened by Zoom. So the students met with their mentors and we did academic check-ins and we did social events. Um, We tried to provide the same experience that they would have had on campus. Um, so then during the summer, as we were preparing for fall, we had no idea what it was going to look like. So we tried to plan for every, every possibility. Um, we typically have a summer prep program because our freshmen students participate in Connections, um, which a lot of freshmen take. And so we do, um, we break down the reading into a weekly plan and discussion questions to help them prepare for for the class when they get to campus. So instead of making that just a weekly online meeting, um, we added a second asynchronous aspect to it. So they would be prepared if they ended up getting to campus and having courses in person, great. If we ended up not Coming to campus, you know, we try to prepare for everything. Um, the returning students are Zoom pros; they are amazing, and the new students are are doing really well. Um, we've had some times where we've had to move things to Zoom for a couple of days, and they're they're adjusting great. They're doing well.
0: That's good to hear. It sounds like you have to almost have two plans going at all times, like a backup plan. Well, in case we can't be on campus, this is what we have to do.
1: Kind of, yeah. So all of the classes have Zoom links just ready to go. And um, one of the things that we did do is make, I can't wear a mask today, um, an excused absence from being in person. They can join by Zoom. Um, because masks are required on campus and um, joining by Zoom is the only approved accommodation through the DRC, we just made it a thing. If you can't stand it today, that's fine. Just let us know and and we'll Zoom you in. And we've had a couple people do that and it has worked fine. Mm -hmm. So, you know, logistically, it's a little weird but we make it work and they're, they're doing really well.
0: I'm glad to hear that. Stepping back a little bit. So not just looking at the pandemic but even like before in general, did you ever notice that there were sort of like more common mental health concerns that students with disabilities experience transitioning from high school into college?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the students, our students with disabilities have the same kinds of mental health concerns as any other student um coming to campus for the first time or returning to campus just with that added layer of disability and so we see a lot of anxiety a lot of depression you know heading into midterms or finals um or just being you know coming from being away from home and away from the supports that they're used to having
0: thank you um in working with the students in Aggies Elevated, have the, has there been any like strategies or skills that you've noticed that, you know, they find particularly helpful, like helping them manage their mental health?
1: Yeah, we use um, something called the skills system and it was created um, by Dr. Julie F. Brown. And it's, it's a dialectical behavior therapy based, curriculum um, specifically for people with intellectual disabilities. So it breaks down DBT into nine skills um, and it's just very step-by-step. It, it simplifies the language, simplifies the, um, the concepts and you can go through it step-by-step. And so that's kind of our common language within the program, all of of the team members have these posters hanging in their offices. Um, We have it in home base, which is our um, meeting space for study groups. Um, It's in everyone's student handbook. I mean, it just is everywhere. And we start start teaching it in the summer prep class. And so it's infused in everything that we do. And last spring, after we went online, um, had a couple students who had roommates who were Zooming one evening to just check in with each other. And they were doing the feelings rating scale and using the tools from the skill system just on their own, as you know, roommates, hundreds of miles apart now, and it, it was pretty cool to hear about it.
0: That's great because then you know it's working if they're using it in their own time, not just when they're required to. Yes,
1: exactly, that's an accomplishment. And I've had um, our mentors as well have to become pretty fluent in it because they are, you know, working with the students. And they've said, everybody needs to learn this. This is so helpful. So it, it makes me feel good <laughs> that you know we can provide that kind of framework for everyone um, within the program. And then hopefully as they you know move on with their lives, that'll be a skill that they have forever.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that answer for like a number of reasons, in part because just sort of in conversations I've had, it seems like there's this fear where like let's say a clinician has a client that has a disability and they just get overwhelmed because they think, well, you know, what therapeutic modality am I going to use? But it seems like you're using the same modality, just like you're talking about dialectical behavior therapy. It's just, you know, how will you communicate, you know, some ideas? It's, you know, it's not a giant change. Like I think some people might think they have to do.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's something we, we have run into, Um, Or I've seen other clinicians, you know, not either not believing that therapy can work with a person with an intellectual disability um, or that whatever behaviors they're seeing are just part of the disability and it's not really a mental health issue. Um, People with disabilities have mental health issues, just like people without disabilities. Um, and people with disabilities can benefit from therapy. You just have to, um, change a little bit how you work with them. And I don't mean you have to change the theory or the modality or, or any of that, um, language matters, um, simple, simple, straightforward language, um, the, the concepts kind Concepts are often difficult to understand because they're um, complicated. So, if you can break them down into a couple of different steps, um, that's helpful. Using bits and pieces of different modalities, or, you know, being uh, calling it integrated counseling or, you know, a, a, an integrated approach. I can't think of the word I'm trying to say. Um, But for example, um, my students are able to recognize a cognitive distortion, which is a a, um, concept from cognitive behavior therapy. Stopping an automatic thought, probably not gonna happen very easily. Doing homework in cognitive behavior therapy not going to happen without prompting from the mentor or or you know someone else so if you can take the parts that work and use them um there is potential for great success
0: that's great i loved everything you said i think that's a big part of what mhdd is doing is fighting those same exact misconceptions that you're talking about that you know, attributing um, mental health symptoms and saying, oh, it's because they're disability diagnostic overshadowing.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Um, and just, you know, that misconception that they can't benefit from therapy, whereas that that's not true. It's not true at all, no. Thank you. You worded that so well. <laughs> Thanks. next thing that I wanted to ask you is, um, so I was told you guys recently were awarded a grant to help establish similar programs in the state. Congratulations. Uh, oh, yes. How will other universities go about setting this up and helping students with IDD feel successful?
1: Um, it, it probably won't look exactly like Aggies Elevated at USU. Um, so the, the grant that we received is a tipsit grant, Transition and Post-Secondary Programs for Students with Intellectual Disabilities. It's the next version of the grant that we received in 2015. Um, But we wrote this one in collaboration with Utah Valley University and USU Eastern. And actually UVU was the lead on this. Um, We are in a consulting role, technical assistance. Um, But what this grant will do is establish Um, Wolverines elevated at UVU and Eagles elevated at USU Eastern Um, year one and year three, I believe, in the grant. It's a five-year grant. Um, And it will also help create um, the Utah Higher Education Inclusion Alliance, which will be sort of an umbrella organization um, to help Other universities beyond these three um, to hopefully create programs at their institutions. Um, You know, so we have a guiding framework sort of going forward, but every program will look different because each institution's culture is different. So we're, you know, I guess, urban residential not sure, suburban maybe, UVU is urban commuter and then USU Eastern is a rural residential program. So um, it will look different everywhere. And my hope is that they will see how wonderful the skill system is and implement that um, as we have done in every every aspect. of, of the program to help support their students. Um, and you know, by by teaching it from the beginning when students are not having issues, you know, then they have the, the framework if mental health issues do come up later. And even um, even problem solving skills, you know, which problems if you don't address them, like with a roommate, for example, explode into into much larger issues if you can't deal with them right away. And so we give them that framework to problem solve all of the things. And so I'm hoping that, you know, the other programs under this grant will also use that framework.
0: I agree. It sounds like it's done at your program. A lot of good to use it. Something you mentioned earlier, I'm gonna come back to a little bit right now, is how um, one of the challenges of transitioning from high school into college is sort of that change in making independent decisions. And maybe not everyone's as familiar with doing that. And it makes me think about the parents. So what I'm curious is, is there anything that you think parents should know about supporting individuals with disabilities as they transition into higher education?
1: Yeah, there are a few things. Um, Parents' roles change just as much as the students do. Um, Parents go go from being the advocate into more of an advisor role. You know, where the students are going from the person being advocated for to becoming the self advocate. So it's you know it's transition for for everyone and. Also, it's hard to watch your kid leave the nest. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just hard all around. But um, specifically, if your student has a mental health condition that they're getting treatment for in high school, whether they're seeing a counselor, um, medication, whatever, please, please, please be sure that that support continues when they go to college, um, wherever they are these things are not going to go away when the student goes to college. If anything, it's exacerbated by the stress and you know, homesickness and all of the things that every other freshman in the world experiences just gets that much more intense.
0: Thank you. So continuing to support them and make sure that they keep using those same supports that they had before as they go into college. That is important. That is something everyone should keep in mind.
1: It's, yes, it's hard. As someone who's, whose kids have grown up and gone, it's, it's hard to remember that they are now adults and it's my role to step away and not give them advice unless they want it. And so, you know, that's maybe something that parents can also keep in mind. Your student is learning how to be an adult Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're going to make mistakes, um, but they need to have the freedom and the support from you, I guess.
0: Yes. Yeah, that's another important concept that you're reminding of right now. Like there's that right to self-determination. So, yes, everyone has the right to make their own choices and make decisions about how to get to the goals that they are deciding on themselves. But along with that, because I hear about self-determination all the time, but then there's also dignity of risk. And that's another right people have you know you have to let people you know experience like consequences of their choices everybody has that right
1: yeah and i'm glad you brought up the dignity of risk because that's something we talk to parents about um we may not do things the way that parents have done them in the past you know we have certain expectations and um, the consequences may not be what students have experienced in the past. We, we strive though to make Aggies Elevated a safe place to fail. Um, so, you know, we, we let them fail if necessary. I mean, if they've, you know, completely have not studied for a quiz and do poorly on it, our reaction is not to, you know, contact the professor and say, oh, can they have another chance? The strategy then is to say, hmm, you know, you had this quiz and you knew about it and you chose not to study and this is what happened. What do you think might be another option for next time? And problem solve with them. Um, We're not gonna make that mistake go away, but we're gonna try and help you handle it better next time. One of the things that we use in Aggies Elevated um, is uh, a healthy relationships curriculum um, by Elevatus. It's specifically about relationships for people with intellectual disabilities. We have had concerns in the past um, with students whose behavior was not appropriate for college where, for example, texting someone a dozen times in a row, um, texting someone who doesn't want their attention. And so understanding what is appropriate and what's not um, helps prevent Title IX complaints, for example. Um, And so we use this curriculum to help students understand not only when they're being, potentially being inappropriate, but so that they can recognize if someone else is being inappropriate with them. For example, touch or you know whatever the situation might be. And so, I mean, essentially it's sex ed for people with intellectual disabilities and some parents have been opposed to that. But we feel very strongly that, I mean, if the students don't have a vocabulary or language to use, you know, if something were to happen, how are they going to report it and be able to do so accurately? And so that's something that we do that isn't always um, something that parents are thrilled about, but we feel that it's that important.
0: I think you're right, it is really important. Um, part of why I say that is because you know we did an interview with um, some directors from a domestic violence shelter and from an independent living center. And that was something they partnered on, was getting a good sex ed out there because it, it's preventative in a way. It really is learning about healthy relationships and about sexual consent, and what it looks like, and what it doesn't look like, you know, it is preventative. Something happens later on. They know that it's not okay, and they can learn about how to report it, so yes. the fact that you're agreeing on this, they agreed on it, I think says something about how important it is. Last thing before we finish, is there anything else that you want to add? Is there maybe a key point or a takeaway that you want to share with our listeners?
1: I think we, we touched on it already, the, a couple different points. The, Diagnostic overshadowing, you know, where we talk about uh, mental health, um, symptoms being just a part of someone's disability, recognizing that that is not the case. You know, sometimes it doesn't look like the DSM says it should look, but there are definitely um, ways that you can come to a diagnosis for a person who has that dual mental health and and disability situation. Um, People with disabilities can benefit from therapy and counseling, just takes a little adjustment. It does not mean that you completely throw away the fidelity to the model, doesn't mean that at all. Um, And the dignity of risk, we have to let them try We have to let them try and be there to support whatever the consequences. people That's how people learn. You make mistakes. And it's no different for people with disabilities. You can't just wrap them in bubble wrap and not let bad things happen. Um, Not necessarily bad things, but let hard things happen. Otherwise, you know, that's where the problem solving comes in.
0: Thank you. Those were good ones to reiterate. Um, that was the last question. I was going to ask one thing really fast. Is there any resource that you would maybe recommend to mental health providers if they are working with someone with a disability and they feel overwhelmed? Is there any resource that they can look at?
1: The MHDD project, of course. <laughs> not trying to plug us in. <laughs> there I know. No, there is um, NAD. Um, is an organization for uh, the, the language seems kind of archaic, but it's a national org- organization for the dually diagnosed, quote unquote, so mental health and intellectual and developmental disabilities. And I believe the website is thenad.org. Um, so they have resources for clinicians, direct service professionals, um, and organizations, I believe. So that would be a place to start. They have a really nice um, companion to the DSM called the DMID-2, and it, um, it follows the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health, whatever it is, um, within the framework of disability. So some disabilities do cause um, symptoms to present in a different way. And so the DMID-2 is really helpful for that.
0: And is that one's specific to intellectual disabilities?
1: It is, it is specific to intellectual disability, yes. I wanna
0: clarify, thank
1: you. Okay. Thanks for
0: joining me today,
1: Sue. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the MHDD Crossroads podcast,
1: where we explore the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities. Make sure to visit our website, mhddcenter.org, for more resources and training, and follow us on social media at mhddcenter. Thanks for listening.